Welcome to Historically Inaccurate, Wholesome Heritage Moments with Megs, where I delve into some of Canada's most interesting pieces of history and culture. Here you'll get to hear your favorite stories, usually extended cuts from my TikTok, Megs Reads Good, with extra little tidbits of information along with my lukewarm takes. Today we're going to delve into the history of Riverview Hospital, so go grab a blanket and get comfortable in your favorite chair because I have feelings. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a heads up that we are going to be discussing some difficult topics around mental health, addiction, uh, physical harm unto children, and things of a sensitive nature. So if these topics are unsettling to you or you have kids or people around you that don't want to hear it, just letting you know. In 1904, the province purchased 405 hectares of land for the construction of a hospital known as the Hospital for the Mind at Mount Coquitlam and the neighboring farm known as Colony Farm. They believed that building the facilities near the Fraser and Coquitlam rivers near a natural setting would be more therapeutic for the patients. The hospital was needed as the population was growing and those in need of mental health treatment were ending up in the only place available to house them. Prisons. The only other mental health facility that was available was Royal Hospital in Victoria, which was overcrowded. The first permanent ward, the Mail Chronic Building, opened in 1913 and was quickly filled to double the capacity with over 900 patients. Around this time, the hospital was renamed to Essendale after Dr. Henry Essen Young, the BC Minister of Education who had promoted the development of the grounds. Now, the original plan for Colony Farm was that it would be beneficial work for the patients, but would also support the hospital. The BC government supported the farm, and over the course of its existence, it became one of the most successful farms in history. In its heyday, it was producing 700 tons of crops and 20,000 gallons of milk per year thanks to patient labor. During the 1920s, it was recognized as one of the finest farming operations in Western Canada. It also produced a majority of the food for Essendale. The land ceased operation in 1989, and the Burke Mountain Naturalists initiated a campaign to have the land protected. In 1996, the land was transferred by the province to the Greater Vancouver Regional District, who manages the park under the Colony Farm Land Use Plan. In its early days, the hospital was recognized as a model of psychiatric health care with one of the most progressive asylums in North America, and even received funding from the Rockefeller Foundation. In 1922, the Boys Industrial School for Juvenile Delinquents opened on the site, and two years later, the Acute Psychopathic Unit opened. Hospital staff were also living on the grounds at a remote site, and eventually a full community grew out of the site and included shops, a school, and even a fully functioning fire hall. In 1930, the Female Chronic Building opened, and in 1934, the Veterans Block opened for shell-shocked patients from the First World War. In 1945, the building underwent an expansion, and in 1949, it opened under a new name, the Crease Clinic, which was used to treat those with the most serious mental health issues. The final unit was built in 1955, and that was the tuberculosis unit. By 1956, there were over 4,300 patients housed at the site. Keep in mind that the hospital was built to hold only 1,800 patients. Nurses said that there were so many beds that they had to roll them into the hallway in order to change the sheets. However, by the 1960s, patient numbers started to decline as regional hospitals had started opening their own psychiatric units along with the introduction of antipsychotic medications. 
It was also in 1968 that the hospital was renamed to Riverview, because it had views of the rivers. In 1964, one of the hospital's most notorious patients was admitted, Thomas Cosberg. Born on October 2, 1948, Thomas had a history of mental illness, even once living at the residence for disturbed boys run by the city's Central Mission. Robert Estergrad, the youth supervisor of Central Mission, said that Thomas got along well with everyone, but kept running away from home and from the mission. On December 9, 1965, Thomas purchased a bottle of sleeping pills, and while his family and his mother's friend Florence watched TV, Thomas made them all chocolate milkshakes with a side of crushed up sleeping pills. Florence had fallen asleep, but woke up around 11 p.m. and left home in a taxi, declining Thomas's offer to stay the night. Thomas's father returned from his night shift as a truck driver around 1 a.m. the next morning and found his family fast asleep. He drank one of the milkshakes before turning in for the night. Around 4 a.m., Thomas went to the basement and grabbed a double-bitted axe. He then went upstairs and proceeded to murder four of his siblings with the axe before moving on to his parents. He struck all of them multiple times in the head with the axe, and according to the pathologist, none of them died instantly, although they would have been knocked unconscious at first. While the police did find an empty bottle of sleeping pills at the scene, the pathologist found no evidence of the drug in the victim's system, and so the theory that they were drugged has been highly debated over the decades. After the murders, Thomas changed his clothes, got into his father's car, and promptly ran it into a power pole. He then stole another car before finally phoning Robert, the youth supervisor of Central Mission, who took him to his former doctor, Dr. Bennett Wong, who had ceased treating Thomas for his mental illness approximately a year prior to the murders. They arrived at Dr. Wong's around 7 a.m. the morning of December 10th. Thomas confessed to the crime, claiming he had done something awful. Dr. Wong called the police around 7.45 a.m., and Thomas was arrested shortly thereafter. When police arrived at the family home at 142 East 22nd Avenue, they found the axe leaning against the kitchen stove and Thomas's parents slain in their bed, his two-year-old brother Vincent dead on the floor beside them. In the same room, Thomas's six-month-old brother Osborne Jr. was alive in his crib, although it was suspected that Thomas had attempted to smother him. 15-year-old Barry's body was found in the rear bedroom, while the body of his 11-year-old sister Gail was found in the front bedroom. She shared the bedroom with their 13-year-old sister, Marianne, who was still alive when police found her, although she passed away on December 19th after succumbing to her injuries. Thomas was arranged in juvenile court and found guilty of six counts of juvenile delinquency in connection to capital murder. On December 14th, he was declared mentally ill and was committed to Riverview until his partial or complete recovery or until further cabinet order. During his trial, he had pled not guilty, but did admit in a statement of fact that he had murdered his family and had drugged them. Two psychiatrists testified that he suffered from a mental disturbance when he committed the murders. One of the doctors, Dr. Joseph Thomas, testified that Thomas was a person who could carry out a complex plan, but that he didn't understand the difference between right and wrong. While Thomas's own doctor, Dr. Wong, testified that Thomas gave the impression during his interview with Wong right after the attack that Thomas very much believed that he was fully justified in murdering his family. In September 1977, it was declared that Thomas was no longer a danger to the community and he was released on the conditions that he had to live in an approved place in BC and that he had to report to an appointed official at least once a week. 
He was also forbidden to hold firearms and could be remanded back to Riverview at the discretion of the board. Thomas ended up working for the Children's Hospital for 30 years. He passed away on January 1st, 2016. It is believed that his baby brother was put in the care of a family member, his identity protected from the public. And in case you're interested, the axe that Thomas used is on display at the Vancouver Museum. It includes a hair from one of his victims. By the time the 1980s rolled around, they had closed West Lawn, formerly known as the Mail Chronic Clinic, and ceased farming operations at Colony Farm. In 1984, the province sold off 57 hectares of land to developers, but a year later, a geriatric unit was opened at the hospital. A decade later, even more mental health services were moved to regional care, and patient numbers continued to decline. In 1988, the government officially announced plans to close Riverview. But then towards the end of 2000, they announced that they would be building a 20-bed unit on the grounds to house people who were difficult to place in community residential treatment programs. That same year, the government and hospital came under heavy criticism for the continued use of electroshock therapy. The president of the medical staff, Dr. Jaime Paradis, had raised the alarm of the number of shock treatments that had been performed at the facility since 1997. Coincidentally, this was when the hospital had begun receiving a fee for the service. He resigned after being met with indifference upon raising his concerns. Three years later, a group of former patients filed a lawsuit against the BC government, alleging that they had been illegally sterilized at the facility between 1940 and 1968. They were among almost 200 patients who had been sterilized between 1933 and 1968. Almost all of these patients were female. It's important to note that the Sterilization Act wasn't repealed until 1973, and that the case for sterilization against women had nothing to do with genetics. It was often due to the claim that they were a bad mother, or a terrible homemaker, or that they were promiscuous. Nine women ended up receiving settlements totaling $450,000 in 2005. The hospital also knew that what they were doing was illegal, but they did it anyway. Many patients were forced into care at Riverview against their will under the Mental Health Act. Many men were brought in by the law, while women were often brought in by their husbands or fathers. The full closure of Riverview was gradual, with the facility being reduced to 800 beds by 2004, and use of the facilities being mostly to care for the elderly. The East Lawn, female chronic building closed in 2005, then the North Lawn, the TB unit, in 2007. Finally, the last patients were removed from Center Lawn, formerly the Acute Psychopathic Unit, in 2012, and with that, Riverview Hospital officially closed. Obviously, with a history like Riverview's, it is unsurprising that the buildings offer an eerie vibe and are host to reported paranormal sightings. Like most large estates, Riverview had a series of tunnels that were used to connect the buildings to one another. This allowed them to move supplies around with ease, but also allowed them to remove the dead without causing other patients any distress. It also happened that the morgue was on the lower level, so the system of tunnels worked out well. There was a story that came from someone working on a set for a TV show who had been walking through the tunnels when they heard a loud banging noise. 
The further they traveled into the tunnel, the louder the banging got. When they decided they didn't wish to go any further and turned around to leave, the banging stopped completely. A security guard on site for another TV show said that whenever he had to patrol the tunnels, he would hear whispers and giggling. He would even hear footsteps, which was especially concerning considering he knew that he was the only one in the tunnel. The East Lawn building is reportedly quite active, causing some to quit jobs in the middle of filming. One set director said that he spent a lot of time alone in the building and would often have to haul gear into the elevators. While he would indicate that he wanted to go to the second or third floor, the elevator would take him to the basement where the doors would open up and they would just stay open. Eventually, he exclaimed, oh, give me a break, and the doors shut. This happened multiple times, with the doors only shutting when he would ask if they could get a move on. One security guard went into Riverview a non-believer. That is until her second night shift when she saw a shadow duck into a room. As she called out to the person, she caught a glimpse of them. It was a slender, balding man in pajamas. When she approached the room that he had entered, there was nothing there. There was no furniture and no man. As she made her way through the building, she heard voices and giggling. She heard footsteps so loud they would cause her to turn around. As she descended the staircase to the first floor, she lost her footing. Not because she tripped, but because she had felt two hands on her back, giving her a solid shove. At that point, she decided she would not be patrolling the basement and went to sit in her car at the front gate until her shift was over. She quit the next day. All of these stories I got out of Ian Gibbs' Vancouver's Most Haunted, and one of the weirder ones was that there was a background extra who also happened to be a ghost hunting enthusiast. He was on set at Riverview. He decided to go for a mini ghost hunt during his lunch break, and when he returned to set, one of his fellow actors pointed to a bite mark on his calf and asked him what was up with it. The bite mark had not been there prior to their lunch break. Now, even though many of the buildings on Riverview's property are abandoned and apparently full of ghosts, other facilities did remain open, such as Connolly, Cottonwood, and Cypress Lodges. There were also 12 cottages that were used as transitional housing for patients from the Forensic Hospital on Colony Farm, as well as the Brookside and Hillside buildings that host a rehabilitation and recovery program. But let's talk a little bit more about the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital that sits across the street from Riverview and is often referred to simply as Colony Farm or the Colony Farm Forensic Psychiatric Hospital. The difference between the Forensic Hospital and Riverview is that the Forensic Hospital treats those who have been found not criminally responsible for a crime or those who are unfit to stand trial due to a mental disorder. Patients at the Forensic Hospital are among the most severely mentally ill in BC. The Forensic Hospital is legally mandated to work towards community integration, and up to two-thirds of their patients live with a concurrent disorder, which is a term used in the mental health community referring to those that live with a combination of severe mental illness as well as addiction to substances. In 2016, it was reported that a total of 200 patients had been reported missing from the forensic hospital over a nine-year period between July of 2006 and July of 2015. 
These numbers were acquired through an access to information request that revealed that only four patients were listed as missing in 2014 compared to the 64 missing patients that were listed in 2007. Just to note that the forensic hospital does refer to those under their care as clients or patients, but I will simply be referring to them as patients for ease. These numbers came to light when a representative for Darcy Clark made the information request after the hospital refused to answer his questions regarding security and the fact that the hospital would not contact Clark if her former partner, Alan Schonenborn, one of the most notorious patients at the hospital, was to escape. In 2015, Allen was granted permission to leave the facility for outings. This decision came seven years after he admitted to killing his three children, 10-year-old Caitlin, 8-year-old Max, and 5-year-old Corden after they were found murdered in their mobile home where they had lived with their mother in April of 2008. He, however, pled not guilty to the crime and was found not criminally responsible in 2010 on a diagnosis of delusional disorder. After a three-month trial without a jury, B.C. Supreme Court Justice Robert Powers found that the killings were deliberate and planned by Allen, but said he was not sane at the time. While the Crown asserted that Allen had killed his children as revenge against their mother, Powers believed that it was unlikely as he had a loving and caring relationship with his children. At trial, Allen informed the court that he believed he was protecting his children from an imagined threat of sexual abuse. While Alan was found to be a high risk to public safety, they declared that his excursions would be highly managed by trained staff and involved extensive planning. Obviously, the decision by the review board outraged the community, and while the mandate for the facility is to work towards integration, the government had put in new legislation empowering the facility to hold severely ill patients indefinitely. At the time of the board's decision, Allen had 11 recorded incidents of physical or verbal aggression towards another patient since his previous review. In many incidents of missing patients, the community isn't notified and municipal officials are also not made aware of missing patients. The Forensic Hospital's official website does have an FAQ addressing the issues of unauthorized absences, and it does appear that they have addressed past concerns raised by the community regarding failure to notify officials. Current protocols include notifying the local RCMP if a patient is 15 minutes late returning from their outing. The RCMP, in turn, will notify the public. The facility will work closely with the RCMP to make sure the patient is safely returned. The hospital claims that in 2020, there were more than 6,000 day leaves and 99.8% returned on time. But I can't help but wonder what happened to the 0.2% that didn't return. And in case you're wondering what happened to Alan, he was granted unescorted leave for up to 28 days in March of 2022. This comes after his review in 2020, allowing him on escorted leave during the day with various conditions and limitations. The board heard that his disorder had been in remission under the management of medication and that his cannabis and alcohol use disorders were also under control, with him being sober for the past 14 years. His doctors pointed out that the risk of his reactive violence is higher in a confined environment, while the Crown argued that his sobriety was controlled by the environment of said facility. 
Apparently, his transitional release would see him moved to the facility's minimum security wing and that his treatment team would find him work and accommodation prior to his release. Darcy Clark's representative pointed out that Allen's own doctor had recommended against the idea of group housing because Allen would fight with other patients, but is at the same time stating that Allen would be okay in the community. Now, I do feel it is important to note that the discussion around mental health is highly subjective and very nuanced. Most patients do improve during their time at the forensic hospital and do manage to integrate back into society fully. My own uncle, my aunt's husband, suffered from bipolar disorder his whole life and ended up at the forensic hospital for a stint after some supplements he had been taking completely wiped out the lithium in his system. He made a very lovely end table at the wood shop while he was there, and we always returned him after his outings. He also had Parkinson's, so he wasn't really a threat to anyone, but it's worth noting that not everyone at the forensic hospital is out to harm the community. So let's get back to Riverview and what happened after it shut down. The consequences of Riverview's gradual shutdown have been felt since the 90s. As Riverview started emptying its main hospitals, those with mental illness and addiction issues were being admitted into local emergency wards. Many of Riverview's ex-patients flocked to the downtown east side. In some cases, they were being discharged directly into shelters. Between 1994 and 2014, Vancouver's homeless population more than doubled. It's difficult to say if that's due to population growth, the real estate crisis that's been going on for a while, or the closure of Riverview, but it's something to think about. Now, in the 1980s, Hollywood North started knocking at Riverview's door and flocking to the grounds. The Boy Who Could Fly was the first major feature film there. X-Files shot 13 episodes at the hospital between 1993 and 1996, and it's said that Riverview is the most popular filming location in Canada outside of the studios. So what does Riverview's future hold? In 2014, the Kwikwetlam First Nation made a land claim to the land that Riverview was on, and in 2021, as part of decolonization and reconciliation, the lands are given the traditional name and bear with me on this, Sumikwaela, which means the place of the great blue heron, in recognition of indigenous rights and the Kwikwetlam First Nations claim to the land. They had been on the land approximately 9,000 years prior to colonization and had been neighbors with Riverview and Colony Farm since it was built. They are currently working with BC Housing in order to create a mixed-use community on the land with one of the newest facilities opening up very recently. Healing Spirit House is a 38-bed facility that provides a range of care for youth aged 12 to 17 whose lives have been greatly impacted by mental health, behavioral, and emotional changes. It's also said that there will be low-income housing placed on the land and maybe even a museum to honor the Coquitlam First Nations history. Well, Riverview does have a history that has its dark spots. We have seen over the last two and a half to three years that the city is in need of support. We need a place for people to go where they can heal. And it looks that under the Coquitlam First Nations guidance along with BC Housing, hopefully we'll be able to create a community where people can go and they can find the support that they need. I hope you've enjoyed this little 
tour of Riverview's history with me. And until next time, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. You are the best. See you later.